Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. that we live in a time where we can record whatever we want and just pass that along for the good of humanity or bad or whatever. Scripture warns us that uh, the words we say matter and I think we have to be very aware that the words we say and then record and then pass along matter. There's a temptation, at least on my part, but I, I know on the part of a lot of other people to just kind of say whatever and let the chips fall where they may. I've seen a John Wayne quote, I'm responsible only for what I say, not for what you hear. I know I butchered it probably, but I am partly responsible for how people hear me. And I preached on a text this last Sunday, Titus, the first half of the book of Titus, that is very against our culture and would be very easy to mishear, take offense at. And I'm not sure that I spoke perfectly. You know, the, the balancing act any good pastor does is you, you talk about what the text means. Not what it means to, to us today, not what it means to me, what the text means eternally. And then you try to help people understand that and adopt it as their own. And I think, yes, we have to be winsome about it, but more than that, I think we have to speak with the authority and gravity of the, the Word of God. And I'm not sure I have mastered that yet. I've been preaching for, I don't know, 12, 13 years and, um, you know, I'm not sure that the gravity of God's word comes through me. And I'm not sure that, um, I'm not sure that I do it perfectly. But I, I've chosen to err on the side of imperfect speech rather than not speak at all. And so far it's, it's worked out well. Everybody's been very gracious with me, but, um. This is one of those topics, you know, the, if you haven't read Titus before, we get into um, racism and sexism and essentialism and uh, a lot of things that go against the grain in uh, 21st century Western sensitivity. So uh, I'm going to ask you to do what I ask folks to do on Sunday. Just take a step back from your own loyalties, your own presuppositions. Let's approach this together with open hearts, and um, if you can be gracious with me for not being perfect, I think this could be a really worthy time that you spend listening to our podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you're blessed in uh, in spending your time this way. Forgot to tell you all, I did a, another video this week. I did it over John Wesley's directions for singing, um, put it out on the church's page. Not a lot of response. Not that anything, the only stuff we've done that's gotten a lot of response has been 
when I interview people who've lived in Noata for a long time and have a lot of good history. Um, so I want to do more of those. So if y'all know of anybody who knows some good history, has some stories to tell, who could tolerate your annoying pastor badgering them with questions, please help me set that up. I, uh, I hate asking people to do that. I've been told no so many times. So uh, if you would uh, ask somebody and then set that up with me, I would really enjoy it. But I enjoy doing the religious stuff, too. I really enjoy, uh, I've, I've walked people through the nature, design, and rules of the United Societies. That was the early Methodist establishment document. And then uh, John Wesley's directions for singing we just did. And then I hope to do more of that sort of stuff just to kind of help people understand what the early Methodist mindset was about. Anything else to be said before we begin our time in the Word for today? Okay, um, we only had two weeks left before uh, Advent begins, so we had to do a book in the Bible that we could cover in two weeks. Titus is that book. Titus is three chapters. We're going to cover the first chapter and a half today. Um, It begins on page 1855 in your pew Bibles. This is called, this and 1st and 2nd Timothy are called the pastorals. They are letters from Paul to individual pastors. This pastor's name is Titus. Titus seems to have been a young man, traveled with Paul for a bit, then Paul left him on the island of Crete. If you don't know where Crete is, it's um, south of Greece in the Mediterranean Sea. It's just a a long strip of land. In this book, I'm going to go ahead and prepare you, there is racist stuff, there is sexist stuff, it does not at all conform or comport with uh, our current culture. Hopefully it's not a surprise to you that biblical culture doesn't match our culture. Um, Even so, it's one thing to say that and it's another thing to see the specific ways in which the Bible is very different from our culture. There are cultural assumptions we bring about what is good that the Bible does not agree with. And so today what I'm going to ask you to do, um, there is this, uh, I heard Bill Maher talk about it, I've heard other people talk about it too, it's called presentism. It's, it's like ethnocentrism, uh, I did not mean to get this nerdy, but presentism is uh, when you're so involved in your own cultural moment that you cannot understand people from other times and places. You just can't do it. Um, You don't have that empathy. Uh, We have a very presentist culture. Um, There's this ideology called progressivism, which has uh, been on the scene for, I don't know, 150 years, came from modernism, believes that humanity is evolving to get better and better. So we're not the same creatures we've always been. Our society is, is better than any society that has ever come before. The notion is that we're just constantly improving and getting better and better. Now that might be true technologically, but the Bible only makes sense if we understand that we are no better than anybody else who came before, that our culture is no better than any other culture, um, and that it is worth learning to see things differently. If If you believe that our culture is the best and that there is no room for improvement, I do not know why you're here. I really don't. I don't see what the point of this is. But if you understand that you are a fallen sinner, no better than the sinners back then, then you should have it in you to understand how their culture was different and how it is that our culture is called to be different. Just in case you need reminding, 
When Christianity came on the scene, it preached a countercultural message everywhere it went. Wherever it went, it preached against the culture. There were things that it could affirm about the culture, like um, Paul on Mars Hill in Athens. He, he could affirm some things about the local culture, but then he said, this stuff needs correcting. Here, he's going to be telling Titus to correct the Cretan culture. You ever heard someone called a Cretan before? That's a racist term against people from Crete, okay? Uh, he's going to be preaching against Cretan culture. He's also going to be preaching against our culture today. And if you love your American culture so much that you can't hear it critiqued from the pulpit, then I'm just going to say a quick prayer for you. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would minister to these people, that you would help them to receive a word that speaks against the culture that they've grown up in, that you would help them to discern truth from fiction, whether or not it's self-serving, and that you would help them to rejoice in common identity stretching into eternity. Amen. All right, we're going to read Titus. Uh, we're in chapter 1, verse 1, page 1855 of your pew Bibles. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So, who's this letter written by? Paul. Who is he? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, a servant of God. Why did he write it? To speak to the knowledge, uh, to further the faith of God's elect. Who is that? Who's God's elect? It better be us. Uh, the notion of God's elect, God has chosen some people to be saved. Why are you here? God has chosen you out of the world to be saved. Now, just because you're of his elect doesn't mean you're going to be saved, okay? The elect nation was Israel. Not all Israelites were saved. Not all Hebrews were saved. It still is contingent upon, uh, it still depends upon our obedience. That's what Romans talked about a lot. So God has elected you to be saved. The question is, are you going to do it? <laughs> are you going to let him save you? Um, so here he's writing to further the knowledge of the elect. He's trying to build up the body, um, especially Titus. <clears throat> Uh, he's, it's, it's supposed to lead to godliness. Verse 2. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, why is he saying that God doesn't lie? He has promised eternal life. We can count on that. We can take that to the bank. God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. He has promised us eternal life. Uh, he is not lying. He's not messing with us. He is not just telling us what we want to hear. The promise of eternal life has been made. How do we pursue that in the way that we live together? Verse 3, And which now, at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So it was a mystery throughout the ages that God could and would save all people. He lifted up the Israelites to do that saving work of the world. The Israelites failed. He sent Jesus to institute the new covenant, which was enough. His atoning blood on the cross was enough to cover all the sins of all the people of all time. Uh, that's the mystery of the ages, which Paul is now preaching the salvation of the Gentiles. Verse 4. To Titus, my true son in the common faith. He's saying, you are my, my son. I am, I am your spiritual father. I am instructing you. You are following me. I'm, he's sending a pastoral letter to Titus. Here's how you should be. Grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete, he's now talking to Titus directly, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, 
We can infer a number of things from this. Paul and Titus were traveling together, giving the gospel to people who haven't heard it before. They did this on the island of Crete. The gospel has already been proclaimed there. However, the church has not been built there. So he's saying, I left you behind to build the church. And what's the first step? Appointing elder, elders in every town. The, uh, the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. That's where we get the word Presbyterian. Presbyterian churches are, are congregational churches led by elders at the top. Uh, biblically, um, this, this is the model. I fill the role of an elder in this church. However, there's no reason why there should be only one elder. Elders are men of a certain quality that are going to be described here. Methodists belong to a tradition saying that women can also be elders. Uh, this is going to talk about distinctions in men and women leadership within the church. Here, with Titus, he's just starting off logistically. The gospel's been given. Now it's time to build the church. First step is getting some elders everywhere. What kind of men should be elders? Verse 6, an elder must be blameless. Oh, okay, easy. We got a bunch of those, right? Blameless men. Uh, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife. That doesn't sound like a high order, but it, it, it is. In, well, especially in ancient cultures a lot but faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. We'll come back to that. Since an overseer, overseer, uh, the Greek word is episkopos, that's where you get the word episcopal, where, or bishop, that's where bishop comes from. Um, this is the text that makes a lot of people think there is no difference between an elder and a bishop. Uh, Methodists belong to a tradition that has bishops and it has elders and they are not the same thing. Uh, some people make fun of us for it. Verse 7, since an overseer manages God's household, here it's clearly talking about the elders still. He's managing God's household. He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Are these high standards? I would say so. I would say so. I mean, hopefully not pursuing dishonest gain. Uh, you know, you, you shouldn't have a pastor that's working at the casino, okay? Shouldn't have a pastor that uh, is, is running some kind of a loan sharking business, okay? That shouldn't be too hard. Most people can make honest money. But not quick-tempered? Man, I struggle with that. Uh, not given to drunkenness? That, that's just pretty normal in our culture, getting drunk. Um, not violent? Hopefully that's not very hard. But when we're talking about blameless, that's quite a word, isn't it? Your pastor, your elder must be blameless. The hardest thing in here, we have a whole thing in our culture expecting preacher's kids to misbehave, don't we? And yet it says here that if, if a man's children are known as wild or they don't believe, then that, pastor, that, that man should not be an elder. So let's, let's remind ourselves, is this stuff negotiable? Is this the opinion of God or the, the law of God or the opinions of man? It's the law of God. If it's in here, is it essential? If it's not in here, is it essential? No. Apparently, it's essential knowledge that whenever you're going to have a person in charge of your church, leading the church, that person's children should be believers and be obedient. So, 
let's run a scenario. Ten years pass, my daughter Susanna is a, uh, a teenager, and she decides she doesn't want to follow Jesus anymore, and she is running around town acting wild. Most churches would just go, ah, that's preacher's kids, they're being wild, you know. This church has had teenage kids running wild around a town before. And in those days, nobody talked about it. Don't make any big deal about it. But if that happens, should I be your pastor? I should not be anybody's pastor. I should have the integrity to step down and say, my household is not in order right now. I have no, I should not be leading God's household. And if I didn't do that, then the church should be able to lovingly speak to me and say, hey, Jeffrey, we're aware of what's going on in your household. You can't lead here right now. We're going to love you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to come around you, but we're going to have to look for another elder. Now, what I just preached, is that self-serving? That's the opposite. Y'all remember this. In 10 years, if my kids are acting up, y'all, I'm serious. We have to read the Bible and see ourselves in it, and we can't, it doesn't matter how much you love me or like me or love my kids. The standard is the standard. You have to hold me to the standard. So we already did this. I'm preaching against myself first. I'm setting things up for a hard word for me. Now we're going to hear more about standards within the church. All right, so verse 8. Rather, the elder must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Discipline is absolutely essential. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So this, this last one, the main thing is, is he sticking with the gospel or is he going off somewhere else? When, when the pastor is up here talking, are you continually being driven into God's holy word or are you just hearing some guy's opinion? And when you watch most guys on TV, guys and gals, preachers, Starts with the scripture and then goes off into la-la land a lot of the time. Or just six practical tips to help you have a happier marriage or whatever. Have a happier job. Whoever you've got in the pulpit needs to be very familiar with what's in the Bible. Equipping you with it. But also, the point is not just to encourage others by sound doctrine. But to refute those who oppose it. Refute means argue. They're saying something and then the elder is saying no. So is a pastor supposed to argue with people? Yeah. The whole point of knowing the word of God is so that you can shut down the lies. And if your preacher can't do that, what's he good for? Let me ask you this. Do lies have consequences? Absolutely. And in the realm of religion, they have eternal consequences. Not just for the liars, but for the people who listen to them. So if your pastor is not equipped to shut down liars, your pastor cannot protect you. Pastor is a protector. It's a, it's a shepherd. That's the, remember, the Greek word for pastor is poimen. It literally means shepherd. Y'all are the sheep. Wolves want to come in and devour you. If a pastor doesn't even argue with people, your pastor can't defend you against the wolves. We're going to talk more about this. It goes into to arguing. Verse 10, for there are many rebellious people. Now, I know we, we live in a country founded on rebellion. In the Bible, rebellion is not good. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception. 
just throughout the world, that's, that's all people. All people are rebuilding against God. Their lives are meaningless, and so they're, they're, they're full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. The circumcision group is that group that Paul writes uh, against in, in almost every book, especially Galatians. It's the Judaizers. They were not Jews. They were just people who did not distinguish between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So they believed that when you followed Jesus, you needed to follow the Old Covenant and get circumcised and, and do everything the way the Jews did. And that's, that Paul stood against that. He said, these people are liars. They're meaningless. You can't listen to them. Your pastor, uh, elder, needs to be arguing against them. Verse 11, they must be silenced. Okay, so immediately my American ears prick up and go, freedom of speech. We can't silence everybody. Now, first off, this is not an American document, but secondly... There's a big difference between a voluntary group and an involuntary group. When you are in America, is it a voluntary group to be an American? Do you volunteer for American citizenship when you're born here, or is it just put on you? Or, and even if you're not a citizen, do you get to volunteer to obey American laws, or does everyone here have to obey American laws regardless of if they want to? You know everybody is subject to the same laws. Now, are we forced into the church? Do we have to follow Jesus? Does anyone make us be part of the church? No, that is a voluntary organization. He's talking about within the church, a voluntary organization, you cannot let liars speak. You cannot let rebellious people speak. People who divide, who lie, who are dishonest, who make room for sin, you have to shut them up. They must be silenced. I'll read it again. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So that it's always been the case within the church, there are going to be people who come in who want to open their mouths and let wickedness come out for one reason or another. And if you want your church to be a true church and to survive as a true church, you cannot let them speak. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor or just another Christian. If we tolerate sinful, wicked speech within the church, it has eternal consequences. Here it's saying it is disrupting whole households. So we were praying about Christian households in that, that hymn we sang, Happy the Home When God is There. We want united households in submission to God. Well, if you allow poison to seep in, to your kids' minds, to your spouse's minds, if you, if you don't counter that, if you don't rebuke that, then it will poison your household. It will poison your relationships. Speech has power. And within the United States of America, the only answer to bad speech is better speech, good speech. Within the household of God, it is different. We do not allow for bad speech in the body. If somebody wants to complain, tear down, gossip, uh, assassinate the character of somebody else, they must be silent or they must leave. Verse 12. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. That's racist. It's saying everybody from Crete, always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Well, racism's bad, so Paul's going to argue against this, right? Nope, he says this saying is true. <laughs> we don't care much about it because we don't know any, any Cretans today. 
But if he said this about black people, oh my gosh, we would not have. If he said this about white people, let's, uh, white people, let's change this. White people are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. How do we like that? Mm, Doug doesn't like that. No, thank you. Don't say that. (laughs) The thing is, the Bible doesn't have our sensitivities. You know, back then, uh, think about the Roman Empire. They had thousands of people groups represented, and everybody participated in society, but they also, also were all racist. You know, people from this region, they have different cultural values. We don't like them. We're better. You know, you had this wide cultural exchange. I'm from the best culture. Here's why. No, I'm from the best culture. Here's why. And he had this exchange. When you're a Christian, the answer is not, no, every culture is wonderful. The answer is, no, every culture is lost without Jesus. Every single culture is lost without Jesus. As I hear white people are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, I go, sure, because all people are. You know, so here, you know, the temptation of a missionary is to fall in love with the people you serve and go, oh, no, they're great. Oh, no, they're great. He's going, no, the Cretans are not great. They need correction. They need correction. You need to remember that. Even their own prophets know that they're not great. It's true that they're not great. You need to minister to them. So he is not arguing against the racism. He's using the racism of that day to make the case that the Cretans need Jesus. He's not interested in, uh, in, in our politically correct discourse about um, equality and equity and rebalancing the scales. He's just going, these people are lost. You need to save them. That's as complicated as it needs to get. Verse 13, this saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. So that they will be sound in the faith. You see how countercultural this is? We, we live in a, a culture and where th- this is completely unacceptable. To see people default as sinners in need of salvation, and the only way they're going to get it is through harsh rebuke, harsh correction, sharp correction. You know, we live in a culture where, oh no, you attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. You want to do your job, pastor? You need to speak sweetly to the people. You can't be correcting people. That's the number one way to guarantee that people are not going to be changed by the faith if they don't have to receive a harsh word. Now, does that mean that pastors should never be kind? Don't be silly. Jesus was kind. Paul was kind. There's a place for kindness. The question is not, is there a place for kindness? The question is, is there a place for rebuke? Sharp rebuke, harsh rebuke. Yes, he's defending it right here. The whole purpose of having a pastor is to harshly rebuke those who are going astray, to refute those who oppose God's doctrine. Your pastor's position is to fight against the wolves, protect and encourage the sheep. It's both and. In order to do this, the pastor needs to carry authority. And in order for the pastor to carry authority, he has to be worthy of it. So that's where we started off. If you're going to have a pastor, an elder, here's the personal integrity that they need to have. Here are the qualities they need to have. Okay, you have elders now. Here's the respect that you've got to give them. There was a, an incident a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I don't want to bring up names, and I don't care to, but, but there was a situation where someone could not be in worship here because a believer in another church had scheduled something that logistically conflicted with worship. And I was very distressed to find that, that the person in charge of this was another believer, a firm believer. So I called the pastor of their church and I said, hey, I just think you should know one of your people in the church scheduled this thing that made it so believers could not attend worship at their normal home church. You, you might want to have a conversation with them. 
I got a message later from that person that I told this pastor about. He said, hey, you got a problem with me. You talk to me. My pastor is not my boss. And I just said, how sad is that? That you're not going to respect your pastor whenever he calls you to talk about the way you're impacting other people's faith. I, I was trying to set this guy up to receive, you know, my assumption is that people love their pastor and honor their pastor and want to receive correction from their pastor if they're off base. But I think the norm really is, my pastor is correcting me. He's not bossing me. Well, what if he is? What if God has appointed a boss for you that is here to correct you whenever you're getting off base? What then? Can you receive correction? Let's talk about sports. Uh, in, in sports culture, coaches talk all the time. You need someone who's correctable. If you want to have a good team, you need it full of athletes that can be corrected, that can be coached. If you got, if you got kids that, or adults that can't be coached or corrected, you got to just let them do it. Just go ahead and plan on losing because people need correction. Sheep need correction. People need correction. The whole purpose of the church is to have an authority structure in place where the participants can be corrected and work well together. If you make it so that nobody can be corrected, what are we going to stand for? We're not going to stand together first off. You seen what happens to sheep without a shepherd? It doesn't go well. God has appointed a structure in place with people in charge so that you can grow in holiness. But then it's your decision, will you receive that correction? Now, I'm not preaching this because I want to show up on your doorstep and say, you're stepping out of line, you get it together, or you're kicked out of the church. That's, no part of me is interested in that. However, if there is a problem, and I show up on your doorstep and want to gently speak with you about it, I would like to think that you would welcome me in and listen to what I have to say and not get angry. I've been here seven and a half years. I don't think it's wrong for me to ask that or expect that of you. I think you know I care about you. I think you know I, I care about the Lord and I want us to stick together. If you haven't made space in your life to honor me in that way, I want to invite you to consider doing so. Let's move on. Verse 14, <clears throat> no, verse 13. This saying is sure, therefore rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to merely human commands of those who reject the truth. <clears throat> Verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. So this is correcting people who want to make room for evildoers in the church. They want to imagine, hey, we can win them over by preaching the pure word, by having pure love around them. No, if somebody is in here for the wrong reasons, and they're corrupt in their minds and their spirits, they're going to corrupt everything else around them. I've noticed this in every single church that tolerates wickedness. If you allow that wicked person to speak and to be oppressed, they poison everything around them. We don't like it. We like to imagine everybody can belong. We, we have this very tolerant society where we need just everybody on board. That is the silliest way to try and do group dynamics, okay? If you have a, if you have a quarterback that can't throw for anything, you're going to lose your game. You know, every single position has to be done well. You cannot tolerate someone who doesn't carry their own weight, who actually works against the team. You can't do that. Verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. He's talking about people who want to be in the church. They're saying, I love God, I love Jesus, 
Jesus said, you will judge a tree by its fruits, right? There are plenty of people who say they love Jesus, but you look at the way they live, you look at the words they say, they don't love Jesus. They don't honor Jesus. And if a church doesn't have the discernment to tell when those people are the way that they are, you're just going to welcome fox in the hen house, okay? I know I changed the metaphor. You're allowing wolves into the flock. Chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Sound meaning solid. Doctrine is teachings. That, that's, doctrine is good. <clears throat> teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Does that sound easy? This is a hard way of life. It's simple words, but here's all the older men in the church. They should be temperate. That means have control of their emotions. Worthy of respect. That's a broad category. Self-controlled. Sound in faith. In love. And in endurance. These are all hard things that require a lifetime of maturity. That's the expectation for every single older man in the church. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Are men and women the same thing? Not according to the Bible. In the Bible, men and women are equally made in God's image, even so they are different creatures. Old men should live one way. Older women, it's not an opposite way, it's just a different way. Teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. Not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. But to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women. So now we're talking about younger women. To love their husbands and children. Do women need to be reminded of this? We'd like to think they don't need to be reminded. Oh, women, are, they have this matronly impact. Oh, and they just pour themselves out for it. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Okay? We live in an age where women have been taught to see their husbands and children largely of sources of resentment. Where, where women are constantly given room to leave husbands or to give their children less than what previous generations of women gave them. It's hard to love kids that are screaming. That scream at you. Clementine was just screaming at us all the way back from Delaware. Oh my gosh, she's so upset. It's hard to love kids. It's hard to love a lazy husband that doesn't carry his weight. He's just staring at his phone when you're up cleaning the house. You know, It is very difficult to love your family, to pour yourself out for them. And my wife's got a pretty good husband compared to a lot of them. But I'm still terrible to love sometimes. My wife has had to make a conscious decision to love me. And older ladies in the church, it is your job to help her do that, even when I'm not very lovable. That's what it's saying here, isn't it? <clears throat> Urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. All right, so we already had racist stuff in today's reading. Now this is blatantly sexist. It's telling women to stay home and to submit to their husbands, right? And we, we're so advanced today, we know better than this. You know, these women back then, oh, they were just like chattel slaves pretty much. And women today, they're so much freer and happier than women back then, wouldn't you think? You would think so. And I think you'd be wrong. 
And it's not to say that they had perfect marriages back then and men and women got along great. I just think we're particularly miserable today. I think women are particularly miserable today. I think men are too. I think we're in a very miserable time because we imagined that if we revised these old patriarchal backwards draconian norms and we just make everybody equal and we don't assume any rules based on people's inalienable characteristics, if we could just make everything equal, then we'd all be happy. I think we are now so unhappy. When you look at how many people are on anti-anxiety meds, antidepressants, pharmaceuticals just to get through the day, how many people overuse alcohol in order just to get through the day? When you look at the divorce rate, oh gee, are we a lot happier now that men and women don't have distinct roles? And I'll tell you, I grew up in a household, that, that, so the two models are egalitarian versus complementarian. Egalitarian is men and women are the same, they should have exactly the same roles in the household. Uh, complementarian is men and women are different, they have overlapping but different roles in the household. I grew up in an egalitarian household. How do you figure out who, uh, who makes dinner? Well, whoever feels the strongest about it. Or who mows the lawn? Well, whoever feels strongly about it. How do you figure out where the kids go to school? Well, whoever feels the strongest about it. Whoever's willing to be the meanest, whoever's willing to yell the loudest, whoever's, or there's bargaining, tit for tat bargaining. I know nobody has relationships like this here, but there are some people that just go, well, uh, they, keep, they have a running tally. Well, I did this, I did this, I did this, now you have to do this. Anybody just love being told what you have to do in your own household? That's how you get a miserable, contentious, resentful marriage. The way you have a good marriage is where you look at, these are my jobs. I'm, a, I'm an old man. Here's what I'm going to do. This is my job. And it doesn't matter if other people do their job. I'm going to do my job. So even if my wife is being real mean to me, I'm going to tattle on you. She was speaking a little too harshly with me first thing this morning. And I said, I am not enjoying talking to you right now. Is there anything I can do for you? And I did. I went out and I took care of the chickens and I took care of the kids. I did my part, even though my wife was not being pleasant. (laughs) She's been perfectly pleasant since then. I just had to say that one thing. And then the next time she talked to me, she was great. But even so, my job as husband is not to be going, well, you're not doing your job and you didn't do your job yesterday and you you need to do all the things and then I'll do all the things. That's not how relationship works. How it works is you submit to God's word. God's word says, this is your station. You behave this way. And then I don't get to say, well, I didn't, I didn't think I should have to do it my way because the people around me weren't doing their job, God. That's, that's just not how life works. That's not how it's ever worked. And you know what? Uh, uh, do your job. God gave you your job. I'm going to... I need to come back to the feminist thing. I don't think feminism has worked out for men or for women. And that's not to say women need to get back in the kitchen and men need to lord it over. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that my wife, after a year of marriage, said, I'm going to just work on submitting to you. For the first year, it was miserable. She did not want to submit to me at all. We would have fights for four, five, six hours. She said, I'm just going to work on submitting to you. And she did. And guess what? We're happy. <laughs> it's, it's the most sexist thing ever. We are disgustingly happy in our marriage. Now, she happens to be married to a guy who doesn't want to be a jerk. There are a lot of women who are married to jerks, okay? They are. And if they try and submit to them, it's just going to be unpleasant. 
But also, if you're bucking each other and resenting each other, that's also unpleasant. It's icky. And there's a lot more to be said about it. We don't have time for it today. I just wanted to open the door. I think a lot of people get to this and they go, well, that can't be true because our truth is feminism. And I think we have to be able to step back and go... Right now, things aren't working real well for our society. We're all pretty miserable. Our households are falling apart. Maybe the Bible has something to teach me about that. Uh, just something to go home and research. Uh, committed Christians that believe the Bible is God's word and go to worship every week. Do you think they have happier marriages, happier sex lives, or more miserable marriages and more miserable sex lives than people who don't? I bring that up because they're happier. If you want to be happy in your marriage, if you want to be happy in your home, you submit to God's word. If you want to be contentious in your home, do things your own way, follow your culture, whatever values they have, just whatever, whatever, this is backwards stuff. Men, men, 2,000 years ago wrote this, okay? They were selfish, they wrote what works for them. Don't be a sheep, you know, believe whatever you're told from the Bible. Be a free thinker. Women have rights now. Don't go back into the kitchen. I didn't mean to be making people laugh, but I'm trying to make it very clear. You're going to find one thing when you turn on the TV, one thing when you go to school, one thing whenever you're listening to the the elite rulers of our country, and you're going to find a very different thing when you run into the Bible, and you can either dismiss the Bible as a bunch of backwards idiots, or you can go, hey, maybe... Maybe God knows better than me. Maybe this actually is God's will. Just a thought. Um, We need to finish. Verse 5, we're still talking about young women. To be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So the whole thing is the way we live is God making his appeal to the world. We are his ambassadors. So It's not a billboard, it's not a sign, it's not an online campaign, it's how you and I live. And so the way we live together in our homes should draw people to God. That's what it's saying here, that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 6, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Now, the last group it addresses is young men. It says they need to be self-controlled, and that's all it says. I don't like that. The reality is that we're all held to the same standards of righteousness. We're supposed to focus on different things at different stages of life. Uh, men, do y'all remember being young men? Do y'all remember being like 14, 15, 16, 17? Do you remember that age? Was it easy to control yourself? I wasn't even human. I was just a creature. I didn't have a solid thought that was not based in pure, like, lust or anger or sinful desire for about 10 years. I think having self-control as a young man is very difficult. And I know women, I know young women don't have it easy. You got all kinds of just. When you, when you take women, one of the interesting things, phenomena right now, the trans phenomenon, you'll take young women and, who are convinced that they're young men and you'll put them on puberty blockers and then put testosterone in them. These women that then all of a sudden have young male hormones 
say, oh, I had no idea how crazy these hormones make you. I've heard, I've heard probably 10 young women, not a, just like on interviews, say, to be a young man and have all these hormones, all this testosterone pumping through you, my brain is crazy all day, every day. It is the hardest thing in the world to have self-control. Joe, Joe's sitting there going, I had it pretty easy. I, <laughs> it wasn't that hard for me. I'm glad you had it easy, buddy. I did not. Most young men don't. Um, all of us are called to self-control. All of us are called to righteousness. I think it's good for us to exercise empathy. And as we look at the different groups in the church, we can go, well, they have it easier than me. Oh, they don't have as much on their plate. At the end of the day, we're all held to the standard of Christ. And we need to be corrected in different ways, and things are generally true of young women that are not generally true of young men, that are not generally true of old men, not generally true of old women. We can get offended and do the PC thing. Oh, not, that's not true for everybody, and oh, we know better now. How about we just chill out and we receive what wisdom there is here and we apply it to our lives? We can get uppity and say, oh, this does not conform to my modern sensibilities, or we can just go, hey, there might be some ancient wisdom in here for me. That's what I'm making my appeal for today. We've made it through the passage that I wanted to do. We're going to cover the rest of the book next week. Is there anything I can say that wraps this up in a nice bow? I don't think so. And I know I just, man, y'all, if y'all want to get me in big trouble, you can call the DS and say, Jeffrey spoke against feminism today. <laughs> and I, so I just want to add a little bit more texture to that. I think it's wonderful that we had a long-term movement in our culture that focused on the equality of women in the eyes of God. I think it's great that women can vote. I think it's great that, that women have been given authority to lead in ways that they didn't feel entitled to before. However, I think all human things can go off the rails in different directions. I, I think it, it, it needs some correction from the Bible. Like every single human movement ever needs correction from the Bible. I don't think that there's anything beyond correction from the Bible. That's all I'm talking about. So um, if I've offended you, just watch the way that I treat my wife. Um, watch the way that I love her. Watch the respect between her and me on a daily basis. And just carry that tension. Well, they're not doing it the way the world says it needs to be done, but they sure seem happy. They sure seem to honor and love and respect one another. They sure seem to have a peaceful household despite four screaming children. I'm hopeful that the way that Sarah Beth and I live our lives help bring truth to what we find in here, and I hope that you can receive that even if it doesn't fit the sensibilities that you've come in with. God takes us as we are. He changes us. This might be one of the ways that he's calling us to change.